thank you very much for inviting me to talk. A lot of um, the work of a chemical pathologist is actually done on the telephone, so it's very nice to actually be here face-to-face -face looking at uh, customers rather than speaking to them on the telephone. Lots of the tests that we do, we do a range of tests. Lots of them are very rare, things like sort of CSF hypocretin or urine succinyl purines. We're only asked for perhaps once or twice a year. So I've decided to steer very clear of those, although perhaps they might be of greater interest, and to stick firmly to the things that people request commonly and talk about sort of abnormalities of those. What I'm going to talk about is a little bit about pre-analytical variation and pitfalls around that something about reference ranges, and then some pseudos, macros and hypers that can be pitfalls for the unwary. And you may think when you send something to the lab that the problems that you have sort of all happen actually at the analytical stage. That sort of crucial test that you want always goes wrong because it's lost in the lab or the machine destroys it. But lots of um, studies, particularly um, as an example, this one here from um, 2007, most of the abnormalities actually happen in the pre-analytical stage before the samples actually hit our machines. Um, a little bit in the post-analytical phase, so after it's been analysed, and just 15% actually when it's being analysed in the laboratory. Some of these sources of pre-analytical <coughs> variation are things like um, the sample being taken from the wrong patient, put, put into the wrong tube. Um, with sort of careful uh, spotting in the lab and by careful processes, we can hopefully pick up those errors and we can actually prevent those results from getting back and being misinterpreted. But lots of the pre-analytical factors are actually quite hard to spot in the lab but can lead to misinterpretation. Endogenous variation, things like variations with age, sex and ethnic origin can often go... Um, sort of unnoticed but can lead to misinterpretation of values. There's a lot of variation with age. If you think of something like alkaline phosphatase, it can vary a lot. You can have perhaps a young adult on the ward and not be aware that if they haven't finished growing, their alkaline phosphatase can be raised. Alphos also goes up in pregnancy, which can be a trap for the unwary. Um, thyroid, uh, thyroid hormones, the range varies in pregnancy, so if you're advising someone on appropriate replacement... And we now know how important that is during pregnancy. You need to be aware of different ranges. It's very hard to actually put those ranges onto a report form. We're quite limited as to what the computer system can do, but to be aware of them, and then we can quote these specific values if we need to. Um, exogenous factors, things like time of day, uh, posture. Albumin varies according to posture, renin and aldosterone. Stress, certainly prolactin can go up enormously with stress. Food intake, and even sometimes the type of food. I mean, creatinine is the one everybody quotes, and it's not only meat, it's particularly stewed meat that it varies with. Things will vary with exercise, drug effects. Some of those drug effects can actually be within the patient, uh, displacement from binding proteins, and some can again be within um, an in vitro effect on the analyzer. And sometimes, again, thyroid hormones, it can be very hard to sort out whether it's actually an in vivo or an in vitro effect. I put this up, um, we're all familiar with the diurnal variation in cortisol, and yet the number of samples that we get that are just random cortisols to try and uh, decide whether a patient's got adrenal failure. It also serves to focus the mind about samples sent for drug testing. 
it really is important to send those at the appropriate time, usually trough levels for most things. But if you're looking for dig toxicity, remember not to send it immediately post-sample. Um, Other sources of biological variation are perhaps less well-known. This is um, uh, some <coughs> samples, um, CK. The reference range is slightly lower than the reference range we're used to because methods, again, can be quite um, dependent on the analytical platform used. You can see that there's a big difference between men and women and between blacks and whites. Again, we can't really quote ethnic-specific ranges, but it's important to be aware of differences between different populations. With CK, it's due to the difference in sort of physique of um, blacks versus whites. And it can also have a bearing on creatinine as well as um, CK. Um, most people are familiar with measuring fasting triglycerides and also fasting glucoses, but you can get quite significant changes in concentrations of serum analytes just after a standard meal. Um, perhaps more importantly, if you admit somebody who's been fasting or not eating for a while, then you ha have them in hospital for a while and feed them, that you can get a change that maybe you might have thought that that change in AST was due to a drugs or toxicity or impending liver failure. It may actually be just due to the difference between them having been fasting for a while and now having been, you know, a fed sample taken. So even quite subtle changes may not be abnormalities. They may just be uh, analytical variation. Now, when you actually come to think of um, reference ranges... It's actually very hard to get a reference range. Every laboratory should define the reference range for their piece of kit in their lab and their population. But it, it's almost impossible to do that sort of given the ethical constraints. So we tend to take what it says on the tin and perhaps vary it a little bit if we feel um, that that's not appropriate. If we notice we're getting vast differences from what it says on the sort of on the tin, then we will vary it with some sort of statistical samples. But it's very hard to just get healthy people. The reference range is obviously the central, for most things, the central 95% from apparently normal healthy people. So you're going to get 5% of people at either end who are apparently healthy but are outside the reference range. So one in 20 people are going to be outside the reference range. And the majority of acute admissions have more than one test. If you think of the standard admissionogram, it's a lot of tests, possibly sort of up to 20 in lots of cases. So you've got 5% of healthy individuals are going to lie outside the reference range anyway. Now, for N-analytes that vary independently, the problem of a value lying outside the reference range is 1 minus 0.95 to the N. So not all analytes on your routine profile are independent, so protein and albumin don't vary independently. But for 20 analytes that do vary independently, the probability of having one outside when you've got 20 analytes is 64%. So people tend to obsess sometimes about something that's outside the reference range, whereas perhaps they shouldn't do it. It's perhaps much more important to consider analytical and biological variation for each analyte individually. So whereas we might quote you a reference interval for creatinine of 60 to 110, for any individual person, the reference interval is only about 18 micromoles. So if somebody starts off at 60, you need to worry by the time they've got to 80. And that concept is really far more the sort of thing that the, the sort of AKI concept is based on, where you're looking at the sort of delta changes in creatinine. 
and we are shortly introducing, I've got this, uh, we're beta testing at the moment software for AKI where we'll be flagging up for each individual patient whether they're actually, um, their creatinine value and the change in um, creatinine value actually puts them into an AKI bracket. And that's obviously meaningful for AKI because of the implications, but it's perhaps something we should do for every analyte. So we're looking not at a, a sort of statistical 95%, but to whether that change in, in value is outside what you could expect for analytical and biological variation. And that would actually be a much more meaningful way of expressing reference intervals. And hyperkalemia. We get 320,000 requests for measurement of UNEs a year. So abnormalities of potassium are obviously important. Hyperkalemia due to excessive intake inappropriate retention, but the most important, or the, numerically the most important causes, are alterations of distribution, which can occur, obviously, in the tube or in the patient. The commonest cause is um, release from red cells, which may or may not be accompanied by visible hemolysis. You can then get release from white cells or platelets. Uh, Haematology patients with large um, numbers of white cells and platelets can get... Um, this pseudo-hyperkalemia. Really important to be aware of that for two reasons. Firstly, if you've got a patient with unexplained hyperkalemia, don't forget to look at the blood count. Just occasionally, that may be the way that you diagnose their hematological condition from unexplained hyperkalemia. And then if you've got a patient who has this pseudo-hyperkalemia, send the blood to the lab in a fresh heparin sample rather than in um, serum. Storage of blood, any stored sample will eventually leak potassium. That's why we ask you to put the time of collection on the request form. I know that when when people are busy, that tends to be something that gets forgotten, but that is a way that we can then pick up hyperkalemia in the lab. Um, Blood stored at low temperature is particularly prone to leak potassium. We're obviously geographically somewhat challenged in this rural location for measuring potassiums. And people who perhaps miss a last collection in primary care tend to store their bloods in the fridge, which exacerbates this tendency. And you can get familial pseudohyperkalemia due to abnormalities of cation transport within the red cells. And this is a, a sort of selection of hemolyzed samples. It used to be that in the lab it was the sort of duty of the biomedical scientists to uh, hold them up to the light and decide at which point of the range they would put that little H to... You've seen the little H on the results, so which of these they would decide got the little H, which is obviously somewhat subjective. That's now done automatically now. The machines are capable of detecting the colour change, and they come up with an index. Now, that index is actually quite important. Obviously, we can't... If the sample is hemolyzed, we can't give you a potassium result, a phosphate, or an AST, because those things are actually within the red cells. So, um, but some of the other um, analytes that are actually read by um, red colour change, it's not so much the release of things within, but it's actually the amount of red colour change that will interrupt. So by looking at the sort of hemolytic index, we can decide at what point we then can't give you those results. So it's normally potassium phosphate, ALT, but the, the, sort of the more red your sample gets, you'll notice that progressively more results get blocked out. But it is all done um, completely objectively now by um, the machine detecting the colour change itself. These results are from a 72-year-old chap who I became acquainted with at this point 
when his GP phoned me and said, did I feel that his results were artifactual? It's always a, it's always a difficult that one, that, when you get phoned up about sort of potassiums of 8.7, and do you want them on your conscience or not? I looked back and saw that he'd had a result of 7.4, also from primary care, back in September. He'd then come up to MOU at uh, midnight, had it repeated, and it was five. Um, I didn't feel that I did want that on my conscience so close to Christmas, so he came up to the outpatients, had it repeated, and it was 4.7. So, I mean, it transpires that this chap really just appears to have very, very fragile cells. He lives in Tavistock, and even this last one, the blood was put into the van just as the van left, but even that, the sort of four hours of, you know, sort of hobbling around in the van, was too much for his fragile cells. What we've suggested, he's on methotrexate, which is the reason why he has sort of monitoring. We've suggested that he doesn't actually have it checked from Tavistock. We've given him a bundle of forms, and when he comes shopping in Plymouth, he's going to have it done then. But there's really very little you can do about this other than sort of detect it and avoid it. So the poor man's had one trip to MAU in the middle of the night and an extra trip to... um, But we did all the obvious things like checking his blood count, but obviously (coughs) tricky to avoid. Um, in vivo causes of uh, redistribution, pseudo-hyperkalemia, acidosis, probably insulin deficiency with hyperglycemia that most people are familiar with, where you get patients who are actually potassium depleted, presenting with hyperkalemia, drugs, succinylcholine and beta blockers particularly, and then situations of acute tissue damage, so things like rhabdomyolysis, and rarely hyperkalemic periodic paralysis. You can get the opposite situation where you get a low potassium caused by redistribution. Um, they say that uh, <coughs> uptake by red cells if you take the blood just after you've given insulin. And then people talk about um, haematology patients with a high white cell count who actually, um, w- the blood will take up potassium. I've, I've never been too sure about that. So we identified one of these patients who had a white cell count of 150. We took some blood, put it in lots of tubes, plunked it on the bench and went home. Um, and asked our biomedical scientists if they'd be kind enough to measure these aliquots for potassium during the night, which they did. And over a time of 350 minutes, the potassium didn't actually go down. It just went up ever so slightly, suggesting a little bit of release from cells. And this is what other groups have suggested, that it doesn't actually appear to be um, white cells gobbling up the potassium and causing it to drop. And it looks as if the, the sort of hypokalemia in this case isn't a redistribution, it's actually a renin aldosterone type mechanism, sort of release from the bulk of uh, tumour tissue in this group of haematology patients. So I'm not entirely sure that that is a redistribution hypokalemia, but it always seems to make it onto the list. Hypokalemia um, in vivo, alkalosis, insulin administration, conversely beta agonists and drugs, Toluene, some of the glue sniffers will have a redistribution hypokalemia. I put barium salts out of interest. That's not the sort of barium that's given for radiological contrast. It's um, barium toxicity. Occasionally barium powders are used as flour and you can get toxicity that way. And then hypokalemic periodic paralyses. We sometimes get queries about um, periodic paralyses, though I don't know, one of those things I always end up looking up the night before the exams and forgetting. Interesting abnormalities. Um, 
Autosomal dominant representing males more than females, different racial variations, different iron channel abnormalities, the um, sodium, potassium and calcium ion channels. The Chinese variant, if you treat the thyrotoxicosis, then they're normally okay. You can treat the hyperkalemic with salbutamol, and you can either treat or use as prophylaxis in ah. the hypokalemic group, although you can't use acetazolamide in the sodium channel um, abnormalities. The other thing I, w- I wanted to mention briefly, macroenzymes. Um, we commonly measure enzymes, so to see, and obviously raised um, we rarely see patients with low enzyme values, but elevated enzyme activity is common. Macroenzymes occur when an enzyme becomes attached usually to an immunoglobulin. So you get persistence in plasma, usually due to something like um, reduced clearance. So you get a patient who has a raised activity, so a raised enzyme result, but there isn't actually an, any underlying pathology. In the days before troponins, when we measured CK, to diagnose myocardial infarction, it was very common to see um, identify raised CK. So patients would come in perhaps with chest pain or pain that um, then was shown not to be cardiac in origin but had a persistently raised CK. Uh, it's been well described with respect to AST and ALT and also um, amylase. Again, it's hard to pick up, particularly the first time that you see it, but if you then measure an enzyme for the second time, Um, and notice that it's still raised, and often still raised at exactly or pretty much the same level. So someone will come in with a CK that's sort of 400, 430, 450, and just stays that way, then it's worth thinking that they may have a macroenzyme. And the way that we look for that, test further for it, is to shake it up with detergent. So you shake it up with detergent, which gets rid of the immunoglobulin, and measure it again, and it will have gone back down to the sort of baseline level. You can also get macrohormones. It's best described with respect to prolactin. The, whether you can pick it up depends on the type of technology that you use. It's been reported to vary between 1% and 26% of samples. Um, particularly with prolactin, you're looking for an elevated prolactin. So the samples, you know, you're actually looking for hyperprolactinemia. So it's been particularly described with respect to prolactin. The kit that we've got is probably nearer 1%, certainly where I worked before. Um, with a different type of kit, we were probably detecting it in about 12% of samples. At Dereford, we screen all our elevated prolactins for macroprolactin. So if you get a result that's high, it will actually have been tested. And you may notice that your prolactin results are often delayed a day or two after your thyroid function and your gonadotrophins, and that's the reason that they all will have been tested. So we don't put that on the report, but they will have been tested. So Merck in our department showed that um, TSH results, you can get a macro-TSH in um, 0.6% of patients. We don't test for those because we do so many thyroid hormone tests. Um, it's actually quite hard to spot clinically because it looks rather like sort of non-compliant. Somebody with a raised TSH but a normal free T4, you would go back and sort of quiz them about whether they're checking their tab- uh, taking their tablets. If you then increase their dose and their TSH stays raised, it's perhaps worth thinking if they don't then respond to an increase in dose um, about whether they might have a macro TSH. We've also found the percentage of macro B12 to be high, 12% with our current assay. We see an awful lot of high B12s, and we assumed it was just people being, um, having, be on treatment who were being measured, 
for no sort of particularly good reason. And we decided to investigate it further and found that there is a 12% incidence of micro B12. This was a 34-year-old male who'd had multiple attendances in the D, um, self-harm, some episodes of illness that were felt to be fictitious. He was admitted after a possible seizure, had a prolactin measured, and it was 12,047. Um, we didn't actually give that result out because we hadn't tested it for macroprolactin. We shook it up with some PEG and precipitated it. And after PEG precipitation, the prolactin was actually um, well within the reference range. So that sort of shows how these macro hormones can often give a result that certainly would lead you to an incorrect conclusion. So without that PEG precipitation step, this would or could possibly have been interpreted as being an ictal event rather than just being a sort of laboratory curiosity. Just a word about prolactin. We get quite a lot of prolactin sent to us uh, for people investigating seizures. We only usually get one sample. Um, if you're looking for an increase over baseline, two samples is helpful. It can increase during syncope and it only rises after a single seizure, presumably because you've then used up all your sort of stored prolactin. And then this condition is another sort of spurious increase in results. This is a real biochemical chestnut. It sort of creeps into all, you know, the year, our year one and OSPI, our sort of final FRCPAP OSPI, very familiar to biochemists, but tends to cause alarm to those that haven't seen it before. So as a 19-year-old chap, had a sort of routine set of bloods done before starting on Roaccutane. So he had the liver enzymes done first, and when that was seen, he had um, gamma GT added, which was normal, and had the bone profile done, normal calcium, normal phosphate, unremarkable PTH, and his renal function was normal. And as a biochemist, I wouldn't be desperately alarmed about that, but it caused a bit of alarm and despondency amongst the dermatological fraternity. Um, although I told them not to, it was repeated a couple of weeks later and was almost back to within the reference range, probably acceptable reference range for a 19-year-old who was spotty and hadn't stopped growing. And by the 23rd of November, it was completely back to normal. And that is highly characteristic of transient hyperphosphatasemia. This is a little bit like a macrohormone, but slightly different. It's um, very uh, commonly described in children, and it's due to or associated with an infection, either previous or intercurrent, and rather than being attached to an immunoglobulin, it's due to changes in the sialic acid side chain of the alkaline phosphatase. And again, like the um, macrohormones, you get decreased clearance, so you get persistence of the alkphos in the circulation, but there isn't actually any underlying pathology other than the sort of history of a viral infection that may have been so mild that that's actually been forgotten about. The way to clinch the diagnosis is to do um, alkaline phosphatase isoenzymes, that's uh, normal in lane one and patient in lane seven. And the band is sort of moved to a very slightly different place. If you then treat it with neuraminidase, so you sort of shake the sample up with neuraminidase and then put it on the gel again, um, that's the normal treated with neuraminidase. And you can see that the patient band then has reverted to the same position as the normal. So you've stripped it of the side chains and it runs in exactly the same place as the normal. So again, very characteristic if you spot it and it can save um, sort of investigation for sort of abnormal liver or bone function. 
So in summary, um, results outside the reference range don't necessarily indicate pathology, but equally a result within the reference range isn't necessarily reassuring. Consider spurious results, especially with electrolytes, and know how to avoid them. And then be aware of sort of macro and hyper analytes because they can sometimes prevent your patient from having to endure um, other um, tests, biochemical tests or imaging investigations. Thank you.